Welcome to Into Theology, where we read great works of theology to know and to enjoy God. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Ian Clary, and together we're the co-hosts of Into Theology. Today is our first first official episode after a teaser, and we're going to talk about the Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin. To introduce the book before we start our reading program, we're going to talk about the historical background and the purpose of the Institutes. So as we get going, Ian, I wanted to ask you about the historical background. You teach, you're a bit of a historian, so could you kind of fill us in? Uh, what's behind this book? What's going on in the world when Kelvin writes? Sure. Um, I mean, we could go on and on about the biography of Calvin, which I'm not going to do. Um, I just make good recommendations. If you wanted to kind of dive into Calvin's life, simple biographies by somebody like a T.H.L. Parker or Herman Stelderheis. Uh, will do a lot of good um, if you want to just sort of situate Calvin. Um, But the immediate context, uh, Calvin actually tells us uh, why he's writing right at the very beginning of the Institutes. If you are kind of following along in the final version, uh, the two-volume is usually the one that we use from um, edited by Battles and McNeil. And uh, right there in the very beginning, he lays out uh, the the whole purpose uh, for his book, uh, in a letter that he writes, uh, or a preface that he writes to the King of France, Francis I. And it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things, I think, where if you're not so historically minded, you might want to jump over it, but I would suggest that you don't do that. Uh, because Calvin, he gives us a lot of insights, both in terms into, you know, the, the Institutes itself, but also his own kind of like theological perspective and his approach to doing theology. Hmm. Um, so I don't know, you know, if you've read through you kind of note how he'll do things like how he'll give an appropriate use of the church fathers uh, or, you know, areas where he agrees and disagrees with Roman Catholics. And so it's a really, really kind of like, you know, helpful introduction to the book. Um, but the background really to, to why he writes and he tells King, the King of France, Francis the first, this is that, um, you know, his countrymen back home in France uh, are being persecuted uh, for their faith. Um, they're being attacked by those whom he refers to as, you know, the priesthood or the priests and, uh, and suffering pretty brutally for it. And, uh, and what Calvin is doing is he's writing a letter to the king, who is the one who can actually kind of put a stop to this persecution. And he's answering major charges that uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church had brought against the Protestants, namely that this is some sort of new, weird, heretical religion that's going to disrupt peace and order in in you know Francis's realm, and so Calvin's like, no, that's not the case. Actually, we're not a new religion, and uh, and here's why. And and that, that's really, I mean, in a nutshell, the kind of you know reason why he's he's writing the whole book. Now it's interesting. You say uh, you know he introduces this by saying like this is not a new religion. It's connected to the past. So obviously that means scripture, but it also means the church fathers. Can you kind of expand on that? Like in, in what way? Is Calvin using the church fathers, at least in this letter and also in the institutes in general? Yeah, I mean, it was sort of like assumed at that time, and it, and it sort of is in our day even more so, especially after the writings of John Henry Newman, that the Roman Catholic Church kind of has, you know, the church fathers and the medievals to call their own. And, uh, and so in Calvin's day, Um, when this charge is being brought to the French Protestant churches that, um, you know, you've invented this new religion. And again, it's as much a a political as it is a theological concern that's being brought against them, that this new religion is going to, is going to disrupt society. I mean, look what's going on in Germany 
and uh, and that's going to happen here. There's going to there's going to be this this lack of order. There's going to be this chaos. Um, and so Calvin is very quick to want to jump on this and say, no, 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 this isn't the case. Uh, this 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 Protestantism that we are espousing here is not new, but it actually goes right back into the ancient church. Um, it's kind of common now to say that you know after the Apostle Paul, you know the most important authority for Calvin in the Institutes is actually the church father, Augustine of Hippo. I'm, whether you call him Augustine or Augustine, I don't know, um, but I go, with, I go with Augustine. And and the next important authority after Augustine is Bernard of Clairvaux, the great medieval theologian. And Calvin is demonstrating both in his preface and in his use of these authorities that this is actually everything I'm pulling here is remarkably old and unoriginal. And so he loves the church fathers. Um, you know, as you read through, if you, if, if you know, you know, Augustine, if you know the Cappadocians like Basil and the Gregories, um, Athanasius, you, their writings seem to almost drip off the pages of the Institutes because Calvin is just so steeped in them. And, uh, and, and indeed, the very, the very first edition of the Institutes was written according to, you know, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, that, that was the creeds are very important. Creedal orthodoxy is very important for him. And so he does not want to get caught up in, you know, owning the accusation that this is somehow new. And what he's actually going to say is the Catholic Church has moved in such a way that really where the, the medieval, late medieval church is in his day is actually the novel movement. And they don't have the fathers. Um, so that, you know, in a nutshell is, is kind of what he's doing there. That's helpful. And the second thing you said that I thought was interesting or might be useful to bring up is uh, the idea of how we're not Roman Catholic. Now, you mentioned some of it now, but I think most of us maybe don't think about this. If you're a Reformed person, you know, in the 16th century, you were Roman Catholic. <laughs> they right. are the Reformed. I mean, obviously they did split, but they are from the Roman Catholic. So those in the Roman Catholic Church who are regenerated, who believe in the gospel, they were a, a huge group of people, and they eventually reformed according to the gospel and according to truth. Um, so it might be just useful to then distinguish and kind of repeating some of the things you said, how Calvin distinguishes the reformed movement from the Roman Catholic church. What does he, what does he say? Yeah. I mean, I think that's helpful in terms of like looking at the use of the way, you know, we understand Catholic today, you know, if, if, uh, if, if I was to come up to you and, you know, say you're kind of just a generic evangelical Christian and I identified myself as Catholic. And by that, I mean, small C Catholic, you would probably get your back up and think, wait, I thought you were a Protestant, you know? Um, but as you, as we know, the word Catholic really just kind of gets at the idea of a kind of universality to the, to the Christian faith. And Calvin very much saw himself as Catholic in that sense. That's why, you know, he's writing the institutes in such a way and in what Lewis might call a kind of mere Christianity approach to things, that this is the very basic of what the faith has always confessed. And, uh, and he's just trying to articulate that in a fresh way in this context of French persecution. Um, but he's, you know, he, he comes out of a, a, also a very distinctly Roman Catholic background. He talks about how his mother, when he was a young child, would take him you know, to all these shrines and you know, kiss the feet of these various saints, statues, and all this kind of stuff. And it wasn't until his conversion experience where, you know, he was kind of broke, broke from what he would describe as a kind of superstition that he actually leads the institutional Roman Catholic Church. And, you know, you get into his life story and there's all these kind of like clandestine, you know, events and him having to flee with Nicholas Kopp because, you know, 
cop and preach some sermons with justification in it and things like that. Um, and so Calvin has to make a very distinct break from Roman Catholicism, but he does so in the name of, of Catholicity. And, uh, and, and really, that's what the Institute embodies, I think, is, is it, you know, whatever you think about certain aspects of his theology, by and large, we can all buy into what he's speaking of. Even Roman Catholics can. When you're reading his doctrine of God and things like that, it's like, this is just straight out of the tradition, you know? That's mm. kind of neat. Well, I think what's interesting, too, about this time period is that a lot of, like, Roman Catholics, they're, they're, they're actually relatively diverse. And so even at the um, Council of Trent, you have Protestants there for a while, at least. There's a real sense in which you can draw from the same pool for a long time, yeah. probably up until the religious wars and various things happened. I'm not really keen on all the exact details of the cause of, of why the split was unmanageable at that point. But it is interesting that there's a lot of overlap, there's a lot of connection points, and there's a lot of distinctions as well, as you noted, the, uh, the kind of um, worship was key. You're going to worship around in this kind of saint and pilgrimage system, or you're going to do yeah. something different, which was massively important to uh, Martin Luther's conversion story as well, when he makes his way to Rome and gets <laughs> pretty miffed at what he sees. Right. Miffed is, a, is a <laughs> just a very... Uh, very technical term you use there. Political <laughs> term there, because he gets very, very, very perturbed. Okay, I think that's helpful. I think it's, it's good to kind of see where he comes from, what the book's about. And I think it's also useful to kind of turn to think about what the purpose of the book is. And one of the things that I find fascinating is his first edition comes out in 1536. He's born in 1509. And I think it's right before his 27th birthday. Um, and then my question is, what do you, who at like 26 <laughs> can write a book like this that stands the test of time for half a millennium? Uh, I know that he edited, updated, and grew it, but even his first edition was pretty powerful to the point that he was forced into ministry in uh, Geneva by um, William Farrell. Right? Oh, yeah. Um, so I just find it kind of interesting that he's obviously a good thinker. He's able to articulate a kind of body of, of belief and worship at the age of 26 or almost 27, I think it is. Um, and then he writes this book. So... Uh, what is this book about, Ian Clary? Well, like as I said, you know, it, it starts really out as a as a, a kind of, and he articulates this even in the preface that you know I, I originally started to write this. You know, the first editions are very small; they're simple; they're mm. kind of based around the the, the Apostles' Creed and, and those sorts of things. Um, and and he's um, he's saying I, I'm you know I want to I want to kind of help train pastors to understand just the core elements of the faith. And, uh, and so as, as you noted, it kind of like, you know, from very early on gained uh, a readership and there's lots of interest. And so he was all throughout his life, uh, going back to it, expanding it, sometimes shifting the order of the way he would present certain doctrines and, uh, and kind of always tinkering with it until you get to that 1559 kind of final edition published near the end of his life. Um, and the institutes are sort of seen in a way as a kind of like, um, a, not a supplement, but uh, it, it's deeply related to his larger collection of commentaries, um, where he comments on almost the entirety of the Bible. And uh, the institutes are to be used in a sense with the commentaries. So Calvin would just assume that, look, if I'm going to make a statement here about God, you know, the Trinity or the Eucharist, and I footnote a Bible text, um, you know, what you ideally should be doing is then tracing down that Bible reference in his commentaries to get a fuller exposition of what he means.
some whatever head of doctrine he's talking about. And then as the Institutes, each edition comes out and they expand and they're changing, um, he writes them in two different languages. He writes them academically in Latin, and then he also writes them in French for the purpose, again, of these French churches. What he wants to do is train these new French pastors who are suffering persecution. They don't have means to get educated. And, uh, and he wants to do that really with a kind of missional purpose, right? He's in these other places. He's in Geneva. He's in Basel. He's always got a mind back to his home country that he's been exiled from. And those, those pastors that he is so concerned about, many of them had fled. They found themselves, you know, in places like Geneva. And he's, he's ministering to them personally, but he's also ministering to them with this book. And one of the cool things to do, if you ever get a chance to, is to actually make comparisons sometimes between sections of the Latin and the French editions of the Institutes. Whereas in a Latin edition, he might use a very kind of more academic illustration to make a point. And then in the French one, because he knows his audience is for pastors, uh, he's going to use a much more earthy and relatable illustration for the sake of, of his audience, uh, which I think mm. is pretty cool. So Calvin has a number of purposes, right? He's trying to teach the basics of the faith. He's writing to a king to kind of say, look, we're not teaching anything new, um, that this is just, you know, bread and butter Christianity here that you should be able to buy into. We're not, we're not trying to disrupt things. And he's got this missional purpose to try to really support specifically those, those French pastors and French Christians um, that are really being brutalized at this time. Uh, do you ever, I'm just curious about this. Do you think that he actually thought he could persuade the king of France or is it more of a, a literary convention? It's interesting. It it becomes a bit of a thing to do at this time. I think Zwingli had done it. Um, this is the period that we call the Magisterial Reformation. I remember, you know, when I was kind of first getting into these things, and I, you know, I, I heard the Magisterial Reformation, and well, it must be called that because it's just so majestic anymore, <laughs> you know. And like, oh, then you learn. Oh, actually, it's called the Magisterial Reformation because these these uh, you know early theolo- Reformed theologians or Protestant theologians like Calvin, Luther. We're actually making appeals to the magistrate to help them in the reform reforming cause, right? We see that with Luther in, in Germany and in places like Electoral Saxony, where he's using Frederick the Wise to help his cause. And, uh, and Calvin's sort of doing something the same. It's become a thing to do uh, to write these kind of prefatory letters to some sort of nobleman or a king. Um, but there's no indi- we have no indication, at the very least, that, that Francis actually would have read it. Um, that, that it even had that desired effect. But Calvin always kind of like kept that preface there to kind of outline what it was that he was doing. So I don't know if he's just trying to be a little bit wily here um, or if he's, you know, really in hopes that Francis is going to read this and actually, you know, engage in some defense of these, these Protestants. It's interesting you mentioned the mag- Magisterial Reformation because, yeah, this is a book addressed to a king of France. Yep. Uh, the fourth book of Calvin's Institutes are full of things about civil government. That's a kind of a big deal for him. I would almost argue that today it's n- not that it's not a big deal, but it's not as common. If you read a theology yeah. book, you're not going to have a whole thing dedicated, typically anyways, to civil government like Calvin did. Uh, why do you think that is? Why do you think that there's that we don't do it today? I mean, well, as much as he did, like it seems like it'd be a bigger emphasis in the 16th century than I mean, the Magisterial yeah. Reformation is part of it, I'm sure, but sure, yeah, I think, I mean, you know, <laughs> um, 
it's not like a, a lot of our political leaders today are that engaged in scripture and theology, but it's amazing to think, you know, back in like, say, the seven, early 17th century, and you think of somebody like King James in England, he was very theologically oriented, right? When the Puritans first, uh, you know, kind of witnessed him as becoming King James the first of England, he'd been King James the sixth of Scotland, and he was a Presbyterian, and they were, they were thrilled. Uh, that he was going to bring, you know, maybe some real theological depth. Um, and so, you know, the, the monarchies at those times, um, actually, you could make a theological appeal to them, and they would know what you were, you could trace out very detailed theological arguments with them, and they could appreciate what you were doing. You can't do it now. It's interesting, when you look at editions of the Westminster Confession, now I know we're kind of getting to a later generation here, but when you read the early editions of Westminster and look at its statements on civil government, it's like, you know, our, our notions of, of separation between church and state, you just find them in those sections, right? And uh, the Westminster Confession, you know, as we have it, say, in America, um, those, that, that section's either taken right out or it's been changed. And uh, views of civil government have just gone on, undergone an evolution towards more of a kind of like liberty of conscience sort of approach. You just don't get it the Magisterial Reformation. Beza, um, Martin Butzer, Calvin, all of these guys are expecting that this is your religious duty as a king under God. Like Calvin says that in the preface, you, you're a king and you are a minister of God. And he's taking Romans 13 very seriously. You have a duty now to enact uh, these sorts of reforms in the name of the gospel. Pretty yeah, crazy. Think if you're living in North America, you do kind of know that we feel like if you're a Canadian or American that we should be able to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. Yeah. Usually, though, we mean that under the guise of expressive individualism, not under the same guise of the philosophical foundations of uh, 18th century United States. But nonetheless, we still kind right. of feel like that's proper and right, but that's not necessarily true of every age, at least in the full expression that we, we give it today. And a number of people have kind of chronicled this change. You think of like McIntyre and After Virtue, sure. Charles Taylor in the secular age, is it yeah. Peter Harrison? territories of science and religion there is a kind of a massive change that happens such that as you noted most of our leaders may use um sort of faith as a as a political tool but they're not really theologians they're not talking about theological issues and if right. they are it's you know it's often cheesy to get a vote and not very authentic yeah um, yeah and it strikes me, and this is one of the things I wanted to talk about too, that that kind of helps to uh, helps us to get acquainted to how we can think about what the purpose of this book is, because it's called the Institutes of uh, the Christian Religion, at least in the title that I'm looking at right here. Right. But it's it's an interesting title because you know the Latin title is uh, religion. There is in this or institutes is in the singular, so it's the institution, or the institute, right. however you want to put it. Probably institution makes better sense. And then Latin has no articles, so it's not the the institutes of the Christian religion. It's the it's institution of Christian religion, yeah. which I think when you just I know it sounds a bit silly, but when you kind of say it that way, it changes a bit of the nuance of how you how you hear the title. And but I think there's important. I think it's an important change. Like those nuances sometimes yeah. keep a lot of weight. Yeah, and I think also then you got to think about like well, how does this work? I mean, if you're religious, then what does that look like now? Today we have the separation of church and state, various things that are very normal to us. But, you know, interesting, the scholars, uh, historians have kind of chronicled the change of how we understand words like religion. Yeah. And today we view religion as, as a body of beliefs that demarcate one faith from another. So you're Buddhist, Hindu, uh, or whatever you are, uh, or Christian. 
But in Calvin's day and prior to that, you know, the word religion was basically a synonym for worship or the right way to kind of pursue God. Now, it included dogma, of course, and included doctrine because, you know, this book is full of that. But yeah. really, it's trying to order us to, to worship God. And I think for a lot of readers who, who pick up a big book like this, that might be helpful because sometimes it seems a bit daunting to have this um, four book, two volume, massive work on theology. And it looks to you like a summary of everything someone could possibly say about Christianity. And you must believe in order to be a good Christian. But in reality, it seems to me that Calvin's actually trying to get us to rightly worship God, to understand what that actually looks like. Yes, that includes beliefs and doctrines, but it also includes the way in which you interact with the government, the way in which you practice the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the way in which you practice the Christian life. In fact, the book is actually quite practical in some ways because of that, where I think we think of theology as sort of an abstract body of beliefs up here. That's something that really came into being around the 18th century and forward. Uh, before then, religion and a book like this, The Institution of Christian Religion, was basically trying to set out what it meant to live the Christian life, what it meant to worship and follow God. Um, in fact, you can even look at books, I would say, like Thomas Aquinas' Summa, which everybody assumes is a, is a big compendium of knowledge. Yeah. But then you realize the brunt of it, the center of it, is actually how to live the Christian life. And somehow, someone has argued, his name I can't remember offhand, um, that actually the Summa is meant for confessors, meant for pastoral counseling. Hmm. And we think yeah. of Thomas Aquinas as sort of like big brain doctrine guy. And yet, just like Calvin, he was a biblical exegete and commentator. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you can kind of read his stuff and you can read his commentary in Galatians. I remember doing that recently and being like, oh, wait, what? <laughs> is, he's very, uh, uh, I know he's not Protestant or Reformed, it's anachronistic, but he's very agreeable to yeah. how we think of our, our Christian faith, even the issues where we think we would disagree, like in grace and faith, at least in his commentary. So I think Calvin's like that. He's, yes, it's a compendium. Yeah, yeah, it outlines doctrine, but it's about worship. And like you yeah. said, it's meant to draw us back to the scriptural text to understand for ourselves what the source says in scripture so that we might rightly order our lives and worship the living God. So I think that's a helpful perspective to have. Do you want to say anything more about that? Kind well, it's, of just, it's just interesting. You know, I'm teaching these with my students because we do um, in, in my historical theology class here at CCU, I go through aspects of the Summa as well as the Institutes. And I always kind of chastise them and say, listen, like these guys, Aquinas and Calvin are actually telling us that these are just kind of like introductory, kind of rudimentary aspects of the faith. And uh, you know, just sort of expected that everybody's going to kind of know this. And meanwhile, we're studying these things like, you know, it's, it's nuclear physics or something, right? And, uh, and so they always kind of like groan and roll their eyes when I, when I make that point. Um, but but that's exactly what these are, right? And Calvin writes in a, in such a way that you know these are the basics of the faith, and he's really trying to get at your affections for God. So as you're saying, you know, um, this this idea of, of of worship and the Christian life. I mean, he gets at that. I had to just you probably saw me searching for it here. But when you look at the 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 kind of subtitle to the book, uh, you know, it's the Institutes of the Christian Religion or Institution, as you're saying. And then the subtitle goes on to say, containing almost, I like that, almost, the whole sum of piety and whatever it is, it is necessary to know in the doctrine of salvation. 
and he uses the word piety again uh, there uh, a second time in that. And pie, piety or pietas comes up over and over again in the institutes, mm. right? And it's this idea of like a, a kind of rightly, to speak in Augustinian terms, like rightly ordered loves towards God. Mm. And uh, and so yeah, I mean that's and and, and none none of those great theologians, Calvin preeminent among them would have ever seen that this is just merely for intellectual head knowledge, but this is all about stirring the heart and it's for the church. I mean, again, with Aquinas, it's like Aquinas was a, he taught preaching. He was a homiletics professor, <laughs> you know, uh, and he, and he wrote this, this summa to help and his commentaries to help us preach better. He was a Dominican. That's what they were. They were the order of preachers. You right, know? right. No, I think that's really illuminating, especially you're right. I mean, Calvin often criticizes people for a merely kind of intellectual pursuit of faith. Uh, you know, the scholastic, some of the scholastic people that he's uh, disputing with anyways, he kind of criticizes, criticizes them for that because he has this kind of lucid brevity, simplicity of expression, and it kind of is the basics. And it's a little bit of a rebuke towards us as a 21st century church, because most of us, this is not the basics. This is often way above our heads and hard to understand. And that's part of the reason that we're doing this to kind of reacquaint people with good, traditional, godly, biblical theology, because yeah. Christ said he'd build his church and he has for 2000 years. And we want to see the evidence of the spirit building the church into the mature person that God, that God in Ephesians promised it would become. Now, Kelvin's not inerrant. He's not inspired like the Bible is or anything like that. But he's a, helpful, yeah, he's a helpful expression of theology. And insofar as he accords with the scriptural norm and the rule of faith and the confessions that we all cherish and love, that many of us do at least, he's a very useful person to, to read so that we might come to know and enjoy God and his creation forever. Anything else you want to say before we uh, end this podcast? No, I'm, I'm just looking forward to getting into the next section. Cool. Well, why don't you uh, read our outro for us? We'll test it out today. All right. Sounds good. Well, you know, um, I do hope that for those of you who've listened, um, that you'll join us next time and that you'll start reading uh, great works of theology with us. Um, as we said before, it's okay to start halfway through this series and uh, these will be recorded so you can jump in, you know, earlier ones whenever you need to. Uh, but wherever you start, remember, reading theology is about opening your mind and your heart uh, to know and enjoy God and his creation. And that's something that you and I can pursue every day.